This episode is brought to you by Get Mobile ID, the smart choice for MDL implementations. Put citizens in control with Get Mobile ID, fully ISO compliant and UL certified for all transaction modes. Learn more at getgroupna.com. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Now celebrating our 90th anniversary. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone. This week, we are talking about a new troubling trend we're seeing on our highways and the challenges of street racing. And with me to talk about it this week is Chief Kevin Davis with the California Highway Patrol. Kevin, welcome to the Amplicast. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you so much for having me on. So, street racing. Um, for those that may not be familiar with the term, let's just start with defining what it is we're, we're talking about. Okay, well, street racing, or what we often refer to as sideshows uh, here in California, um, are essentially coordinated takeovers of intersections and occasionally freeways, and in some cases, even bridges. Um, they draw large crowds of pedestrians, often blocking lanes of traffic. Um, this can cause a nuisance for nearby residents. Um, and pulls police resources away from other community needs. And really, our number one concern is that it endangers the participants and the spectators that choose to watch these events, which often involve vehicles yeah. uh, doing donuts in intersections and just driving recklessly. So the three phrases that we hear, they're really, are, are they synonyms for each other or are there, are there differences when we hear street racing, sideshows, street takeovers, are there differences in those activities or are they really all synonyms for the same types of behavior? I think for the most part, they're all synonyms. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in some cases, street racing could be going down a long stretch of highway, whereas the takeovers and the sideshows are often confined to a, a limited space or an intersection. But for the most part, they're synonymous. And, you know, on one hand, we say, you know, it's a new troubling trend. On the other hand, the need for speed, the wanting to go fast, the wanting to show off certain types of vehicles is in many ways not a new phenomenon at all. So is it a new trend? Is there something different that's happening that we either we haven't seen before or maybe we haven't seen in a while and it's a return of a, of a culture that maybe was subverted for a time? You know, I think there's always been a desire on the part of people, particularly vehicle enthusiasts, to show off their vehicles and show off what they can do. Um, you know, we, hopefully we hope this occurs in controlled or confined spaces such as racetracks and so forth. But, you know, we've seen it taking over public streets now, um, perhaps with the advent of social media has made it more popular. Um, I can't pinpoint the causes, but we've definitely seen a sharp increase up into a peak of last year, at least here in California. Um, and we've also seen, sadly, an increase in the violence and the, the, the injuries and in some rare cases, even the fatalities that can come out of these dangerous events. Oh, you know, in many ways, it's it's not only the the dangerous behavior, dangerous in of itself, but maybe it, they're, as we're seeing in a lot of aspects of society, pushing it to a new extreme, pushing the borders even further, um, you know, relating to, unfortunately, ending up with more injuries, crashes, and, and fatalities. So have you seen, you've seen that kind of needle change where what might have been a race of two cars down the highways before is now becoming a much more complicated, aggressive type activity? Absolutely. Um, 
you know, just some of the stats that I pulled real briefly for our conversation here today. Um, just over the past five-year period in California, we had over 250 crashes just at these events. Um, sadly, 30 of those crashes resulted in fatalities, um, along with, you know, over 100 injuries as well. And that's just from the vehicles. Um, we've also seen, like I mentioned earlier, an increase in some of the violence. Um, just recently in Los Angeles, there was um, a shooting at one of these events where two spectators were shot and killed. So mm. again, the violence is really what's been ramped up, so to speak, as of late, and which is of great concern to us. And have you seen trends in terms of certain geography or certain places where you're, you're seeing these challenges more than others? You mentioned Los Angeles, but I imagine it's not purely an urban challenge. No, not at all. That's one of the probably newer developments we've seen is um, whereas historically it was generally in metropolitan areas like Los Angeles and um, San Francisco and Oakland and so forth, at least here in California, we have seen some of these events extending out to other communities, out to the suburbs. And, you know, I don't know if it's just an increase in the popularity or perhaps a desire to try to evade where we're going to be, where law enforcement mm -hmm. is more active and more present. But we definitely have seen um, these events uh, spreading out into more suburban areas as well um, in the yeah. last couple of years. Well, I imagine, you know, from a, a novice's point of view, you would you would have to to even find a road open enough <laughs> to to do this activity. Not that we're encouraging it by any means, but certainly, you know, it's it's almost an oxymoron to say you can race in Los Angeles. That's true, and that's why I mentioned earlier the 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 traditional what we think of as racing, you know, going down several blocks is not happening as much. It's def it's more of, especially in areas like Los Angeles, you know, taking over an intersection. Um, doing the donuts and the sideshow activities um, and all the danger and often violence that goes along with that. And so from a um, from an enforcement perspective, you know, you mentioned at the outset, it obviously it means you have to put enforcement resources on this activity, which takes you away from other activities, which is always a, a challenge in of itself. But what are the other unique challenges of trying to enforce these types of activities? Is it you know, let's start with being able to identify where it's going to occur as kind of a preemptive approach. Is there a way um, with data and analytics to say, okay, we know that these types of day, these places might be more, more likely, or is it too random at this point to be able to isolate that? Um, I can't tell you definitively that we have, you know, analytics of where they're going to occur in advance. But what we do is, you know, we've, we've learned to start scanning social media um, encouraging the public to call these events in. And I think what we've learned is just by the sheer size and nature of some of these events, you know, there was, you know, there can be over 300 people easily just in one intersection. And it requires a very careful coordinated response. And I think the best approach is to try to stop it before they set up. So that's why we take, um, we try to scan, like I said, the social media um, we try to use some of the intelligence efforts that we can to try to find out in advance where these people are going and to try to shut them down before they get there. Because once they've set up shop and taken over an intersection, then it becomes extremely difficult and in some cases impossible to clear them out immediately. Um, and again, back to your earlier reference, it requires more resources to do so. Oh, talk to me about stopping them in advance. What does that look like from a, from a tactical standpoint? Uh, well, for example, if we see a social media post about a known club that participates in these activities, 
Sometimes they will post that they are going to be at a certain intersection or a certain location, um, encouraging people to meet up there. And so we try to get there first. Um, we had an effort recently where we were literally trying to stop people as they were driving to the location. Um, and we can stop people for modified equipment, for driving reckless en route to the location, um, whatever the case may be. But if we can really saturate the area, and that's both with our personnel from the California Highway Patrol, as well as our local law enforcement partners in the area, um, that's usually the best approach. And we've also used our air support um, to get a better vantage point of the location and the incoming vehicles um, to try to coordinate our response that way as well. So uh, talk to me about uh, working with local law enforcement. I imagine especially in, well, in, in all areas, whether it's urban or rural, whether it's working, uh, working with a local urban police department or in a more rural place, working with uh, a sheriff's office. Um, how, how do you approach that from the state perspective to then partnering with local enforcement on these types of activities? Yeah, like I said, um, oftentimes these events occur outside of CHP jurisdiction. So it's absolutely mm -hmm. paramount that we coordinate with our city and county law enforcement partners. Um, you know, we recently conveyed, convened a large press conference in Los Angeles, which involved our deputy commissioner, along with the LA County Sheriff and the chief of police for LAPD. Um, so these partnerships are extremely important to allow us to uh, pool our resources, to coordinate our efforts and really just act as a force multiplier. Um, I think it's no secret that many law enforcement agencies throughout the country, and we're no exception, are, ha have some personnel resource shortages at this time. So it's extremely important that we all work together. Um, and it's not always just law enforcement. You know, one of our partners is the California Bureau of Automotive Repair. You know, they coordinate with us on a lot of the training that we provide to our law enforcement partners. Um, and they're instrumental in educating us on some of the California emission standards and some of the laws um, that we can take action on when we encounter these vehicles, uh, many of which have modified themselves for these, these activities. Um, and we also work with our Department of Motor Vehicle partners. Um, you know, we can coordinate, we have a, currently we have a liaison with the Bureau of Automotive Repair. And when we identify a vehicle with some modified equipment or modified exhaust or otherwise not in compliance with California emission standards, uh, we can put a, a vehicle licensing and title stop on that vehicle to ensure that these drivers or these operators uh, get their vehicles back into compliance with California emission laws. Now, are, are you doing that because it's an opportunity to identify, uh, you know, an individual that might be willing to break one law regulation or is likely to break multiple laws and regulations. So it's a able, it's an opportunity to enforce on all levels. Or is it an example where you don't have enough levers in the street racing penalty side of it? You know, it's kind of like getting Al Capone on taxes instead of on other things because, you know, you're not able to catch them doing what you really want to catch them doing. And that's a great question, Ian. I, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, there are, we're, we're fortunate in California that our legislature um, has provided us with some tools to take enforcement actions against some of these drivers um, to include we can penalize and in some cases even arrest spectators and vehicle occupants um, and we can impound vehicles. So we're fortunate in that way, but you know, we want to take as much action as we can to really deter this dangerous activity. And so if that involves uh, vehicle emission violations um, or even maybe driver re-exams for reckless driving, we'll certainly take every opportunity we can to uh, institute those measures as well. 
have you been able, you know, I imagine some other states may not have uh, the penalties for some of these behaviors that they, that they would want. Um, do you think that there's some element of the drivers, you know, they're willing to do it because they can get away with it or that, you know, even if they get caught, they know the, the repercussions of doing these kind of things just aren't severe enough to be a deterrent? Um, you know, I, I think it's a, a little bit all of the above. You know, I think some yeah. people just, it's the thrill of doing it. It's maybe that internet fame, if you will, that they're going for in some cases. Um, mm. And perhaps they're just playing the numbers that, you know, if they get several hundred people out there, um, they're probably hoping that they won't get caught. You know, I've seen events where when the police do show up, they all scramble and, you know, there, there's only so many that we can mm -hmm. go after at a time. Yeah. Um, but, but that being said, that's why, again, that's why we try to attack this on all fronts to include spectators, to include vehicles, um, you know, arriving at the scene or anything else that we can do to really serve as a powerful deterrent against this, what has become sadly an increasingly dangerous activity here, especially in California. So Kevin, I have to imagine some of this may be lack of awareness on the part of drivers or, or spectators. Uh, tell me a little bit about more, at least as a case study, what you're doing in California. You mentioned that there's some new funding available in terms to really push out those messages to maybe give people the benefit of the doubt and <laughs> teach them maybe you should reconsider these this type of activity. Yeah, that's a great point, Ian. Um, we're very fortunate to have strong support, both from Governor Newsom and the legislature here in California. Um, we were allocated several million dollars um, in 21-22 fiscal year to uh, purchase equipment, conduct enforcement, but perhaps most importantly, um, conduct some marketing and educational efforts to make sure people are not just aware of the dangers of these activities, but aware of the potential consequences. Um, you know, just for example, we had a campaign which we had 24 million television impressions, um, over 600,000 radio impressions, and over 5 million online views for some of the educational material that we provided. Um, and I'm proud to say that I think there's been some success with some of these efforts. Um, I, I mentioned previously, we had a peak in 2021 of over 7,000 reported street racing and sideshow incidents in California um, with over 1,500 roadways closed um, due to these events. Um, and in 2022, that number dropped to 3,800 incidents with over 800 roadway closures. So again, we're very happy with the progress, but by no means is our work complete because as I've alluded to previously, um, these events still bring a lot of spectators and sadly we're seeing increases in violence at a lot of these events. Yeah. Now you talked a little bit about partnering with local law enforcement, you talked about partnering with the DMV. I'm curious about partnering with the DOT side of the house because I know some states are deploying infrastructure changes to actually make it just simply physically impossible to do some of these things in, in different areas. Is that a conversation that you've been a part of at, at CHP? Uh, we have had some discussions on that topic, but um, California is, is unique in that our state DOT has the state highway system. And a lot of these events, especially the ones that draw the most spectators, are often occurring on city and county roads, mm -hmm. um, which are not under the purview of our state DOT. Um, but that's why we work closely with our local partners to coordinate with their local traffic engineers and traffic safety professionals in that way. Um, and you're right. Um, if there were, if there were efforts that could be taken to make these 
events more difficult to set up. We're absolutely supportive of that. But sadly, when they do enter the state highway system, in some cases, they just stop all lanes of traffic. I mean, we've seen some some videos that have gone viral of people completely stopping the San Francisco Oakland Bay Bridge, for example. Wow. And there's really not much that can be done about that if we don't know um, in advance that it's coming. Yeah, because at that point, like you said earlier, you've got hundreds of people. The types of enforcement response you would need to do that um, at at best, you know, if it's practical to deploy that much, and then the consideration of what I can imagine could be maybe even an escalation that you wouldn't want by deploying that level of an enforcement response. Yeah, and that's where that's the challenge lies right there with what you you just hit the nail on the head. You know, it's it's you know traditionally law enforcement officers just want to to charge right in and take care of the take care of what needs to be done, but it's sometimes literally physically impossible because of the traffic blocks. Um, in other cases, it's like you said, not not advisable to do so because of the potential for danger. And so we have to have a measured and calculated and careful response. Oftentimes, once these things do form up, we'll remain a distance away to develop a plan of action for response and to ensure that we have sufficient resources to respond safely and appropriately. How long do these things Doing this kind of stopping traffic, doing the donuts, doing their their sideshows. Is it like a a like a flash mob dance where they go and they do it in thirty seconds and they're gone, or are they shutting it down and they're there for thirty minutes doing doing their thing? You know, it really varies, Ian. I'll be honest with you. I've, I've seen some where it's like you mentioned the flash mob mentality, where it's a quick shutdown for a minute or two and then they're on to the next place. Um, and sometimes they'll just stay put um, until law enforcement comes to break it up. And that could be 30 minutes to an hour in some cases, and unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So it really just varies based on the crowd and the environment and the location. And uh, so, Kevin, I know you have been uh, giving some presentations about this topic at a number of the, the AMVA events. Uh, so tell me, uh, are there other particular areas of this topic that you, you focus on at those presentations that maybe we haven't had a chance to touch on? Um, not specifically. I think we've touched on quite a bit. You know, at, at the end of the day, this is a coordinated effort. We have to work with, as I alluded to previously, um, our lawmakers to ensure we have the proper tools at our disposal and the proper funding. We have to coordinate with public education um, and in some cases, even working with community based organizations. Um, there's a really great one here in California called Street Racing Kills. Uh, we've recently done some work with their organization. Um, and our law enforcement partners, as well as with our other stakeholders, such as the Bureau of Automotive Repair, and as I mentioned previously, even our uh, DMV offices. So it's really a coordinated effort um, that we try to attack on all fronts um, to have the best results. What is the DMV role in the, in the partnership? Obviously, once there is some sort of enforcement action, they're the ones that could take a, a licensing sanction, or like you said earlier, the you know if it's not titled properly or they haven't taken their missions, it's that administrative action after after the point of enforcement is there are there other more proactive roles a dmv can be involved in this conversation besides that enforcement arm after the the sanction occurs no i think you hit it uh, the nail on the head again i think it's just coordinating carefully with the law enforcement partners you know when we first went down this road a few years back um there was a little confusion and a lack of awareness on the part of our dmv as to what we were doing and why we were Mm -hmm. doing it and so we sat down, we met with them along with BAR to ensure that everyone was on the same page. 
um, about what they could expect when we issued these citations for the admission violations. Um, and as part of our training program, we provide all of our personnel with uh, a resource booklet, our, our law enforcement personnel. And one of the more popular aspects of that is a QR code that when our folks stop someone for these emission violations, it auto generates an email to our Bureau of Automotive Repair, who then coordinates with our DMV for those title stops to ensure mm -hmm. that they're getting their vehicles into compliance with California emission laws. And so uh, when you, whether it's at the AMVA events or other places where you're talking about this, what are you hearing from your colleagues in other jurisdictions? Are they experiencing something similar to California, different, you know, certainly the research we show that some of the states with the most street racing violations are actually some of the more rural states when compared to, to California. But I'm just curious what you're hearing when you talk to your peers and colleagues around the country. You know, that's a great question. And it's, it's really all over the board. Um, I was actually very surprised to hear, as you alluded to, some more rural areas um, are starting to experience this throughout the country. Um, and again, that goes back to perhaps it's the social media influence. Um, I can't speak to precisely what's causing that, but it was very interesting to me because, you know, we think it predominantly as a issue in metropolitan cities here in California. Mm -hmm. That's at least where it seems to be most prevalent and sadly the most violent. But yes, I have been hearing more and more lately about more rural areas of both California and throughout the country um, experiencing this same phenomenon, unfortunately. Yeah. I know one of the areas where you've spent a lot of your career in, uh, Kevin, is work on impaired driving. And I'm curious if you're seeing any crossover in this space of impairment and these, act these activities. That's a great question. And yes, um, impaired driving is at the forefront um, at a lot of these events. Uh, sadly, some of the people who choose to engage in this risky behavior um, are doing so while under the influence of drugs and or alcohol. So Yes, we're definitely seeing some impaired drivers at these events, and that's certainly something that we're aware of and um, looking out for when we come into contact with these drivers and participants. And I guess uh, you know, on the it's, it not only makes it more dangerous, but on you know, it certainly gives the officer you know again not unlike looking at modifications, looking at emissions. It's just one other place where um, someone trying to not obey, you know, gives you at least some enforcement options to, to take some action and get those individuals off the road. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, as, I, as I've stated previously, that's why we really try to attack this on all fronts, both from the impaired driving standpoint, um, the emissions standpoint, or just the reckless or reckless driving standpoint, which is sadly often the most dangerous. Yeah. So do you think there's a future where we really can this trend, you know, curb the, the data, or are we unfortunately in a place, at least for the foreseeable future, where it's about, you know, managing the enforcement, trying to mitigate it and responding to it versus really shifting the behavior, shifting the culture? Um, I'd love to tell you that we're going to put an end to this really <laughs> soon, um, but yeah. it's it's a challenging topic, I, I, I must say. Yeah. You know, Not like so many others, right? Exactly. You know, we're, we're certainly committed to seeking criminal prosecution against drivers and anyone who assists them in these dangerous activities to provide a powerful deterrent. Um, we're going to remain committed to educating the public and the potential people who choose to get involved in these events on the dangers um, and the consequences associated with it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, like I said, it takes strong partnerships. Um, 
and a commitment to community safety to just ensure that the community remains safe and makes safe and sound decisions with regards to these type of events. Um, you know, I recently talked to someone down in Central California and we're contemplating a educational campaign down there where we're urging people to go to speedways and legal places to take part in these activities. So mm. we're really trying everything we can and uh, pretty much throwing everything at it that we can to try to make it stick. Wonderful. Well, Kevin, thanks for spending some time with me today to chatting about it, better understand it. Um, anything we could do to continue to support the work uh, you're doing, the DMV partner, the local law enforcement partners, we, we wanted you to um, just better, like you say, keep keep these roads safe and keep our communities safe. Uh, thank you very much, Ian. Just again, I want to thank you and, and all the leadership at AMVA for your commitment to safety and issues such as this. And I look forward to continued conversations on this topic. Excellent. Thanks for all for listening this week. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Till next week, everyone, stay well. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Get Mobile ID by Get Group North America. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. <laughs>